Welcome to the Best Teachers in California podcast. This podcast is not supposed to be an exhaustive list of the best teachers in California, but we are going to introduce you to some amazing teachers um, from our golden state that are doing amazing things in the classroom um, to highlight them and share some of their experiences. I'm very excited that this first episode we have Rosie Reed. Uh, Rosie is an English teacher at Northgate High School in Walnut Creek, California. She's nationally board certified um, and is also a consultant in the Bay Area Writing Project. Uh, she won the 2019 California Teacher of the Year um, and was also a nominee for the National Teacher of the Year. Uh, she's been teaching for about 18 years and has taught every level in high school. Um, her experience as a foster, adoptive, and biological mom has also informed her teaching experience. This particular interview was really great. Rosie had a lot of things to say about the teaching profession, uh, young teachers, classroom management, uh, teaching English, teaching students that are learning English, um, and much, much more. Uh, I know you're going to love this podcast, and uh, Rosie's such an awesome person to talk to. Um, I learned a lot, and I know you will too. So enjoy this interview with Rosie Reed. So do I call you Rosie? Yes, Rosie's okay. great. Rosie's great. Um, so Rosie, did you always know you wanted to be a teacher? When I was a kid, I did not know what I wanted to do. I did not know if I wanted to be a teacher. I really liked writing stories. I liked playing outside. We lived in the country up in Northern California, um, Mendocino County. We did not have electricity. And so it was really a lot of playing outside and just inventing things. And I didn't know I wanted to be a teacher, but I did know that I had a lot of really amazing teachers. When I was growing up, I was really, really poor. And so these teachers just would go above and beyond to help me. And a really great example of that is when I was a junior in high school, my guidance counselor came up to me and said, hey, you know, you should take the SATs. And I said, well, the life of a teacher involves everything else that you don't want to hear. We yeah. hear them all the time. It's normal. I'm definitely yeah. that so you understand our plight. That is my life right there. So um, yeah, so I was I was a junior and my counselor came up to me and said, you should take the SAT. And I said, how can I take the SAT? We live in the country. The nearest testing center is two hours away and we don't have a car. And my basketball coach was standing right by me and he said, hey, I'll drive you, kid. And he drives me to the SATs, meaning he picks me up at 530 in the morning and he drives me down there, buys me a burger afterwards and drives me home. So I had all these amazing educators all the way through school. But I didn't know that I wanted to be a teacher until after I graduated from college when I thought, you know, what is a way to actually change the world? And this was the answer that I came up with. Well, it's funny you it's funny you bring up just kind of being creative and being in touch with nature, because I just I just finished reading this uh, biography of Walt Disney and Walt Disney spent part of his life kind of living in a country town um, and then moved to, I believe it's St. Louis. Um, and lived in this, but he, 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 he always kind of harkened back to that early time in his life uh, when he was really in touch with nature. And that's where a lot of his creativity comes from. So I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm just kind of vamping here, but um, I, I feel that, like you're kind of drawn on that. Well, I think that a lot of people, like we all need to get out in nature more. I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are sad because when we go outside in nature, we just get happier and we get more connected to each other, I think, by going out in nature. 
I would also say that growing up in a small town really helped me develop some of my basic principles. Um, one is in a small town, you don't walk by somebody without saying hi. It's just not done, right? It would be incredibly rude. So the community that you live in and the community you create are vitally important. And so that has been one of the things that I've brought with me into everything that I try to do in the classroom and outside of it. Another thing about growing up in a small town is that uh, you're, you can really see the demographics slices very clearly. The small town where I grew up was um, there was there were the white people and the white people were farmers or hippies. Those are the choices. We had a lot of indigenous people. We had um, American Indians uh, from two different tribes that would come to our school from over an hour away on a bus. And we had a lot of Latinx uh, farm workers. And they were very segregated into the different groups. And I was very aware that the groups were treated very differently and that there was a social hierarchy. And so I became very aware of white privilege pretty early on by just noticing how I was treated um, in comparison to some of my peers. You know, uh, I feel like all teachers have that one teacher that they can point to, or it's like we all have these stories of great teachers. And it, it, it seems like it's almost like a part of the journey of becoming a teacher is you have a good teacher first and then that draws you into the profession. Cause I can think about my good teachers um, from high school and college that uh, made me inspired to join the profession. And um, you know, I, it's, it's just a fascinating thing to think about it kind of like a mentoring process. Would you, so are there, is there specific teachers that you would look back to and say, I wanted to be like them? I can think of so many teachers that were amazing for me. And I, I, I really, it's hard for me to point to one. I think we often really think about the bad teachers out there. But I think so many of us can really think about teachers who impacted us in a variety of ways. The teacher who academically woke us up. The teacher who was really the hug we needed when we were having a hard day. The teacher who taught us how to, you know, write a creative story. The teacher who would give us a candy bar when we got an answer correct and made it fun to come to school. So I am really a teacher lover. I'm a proponent of teachers. And I think that comes from me having had such an awesome experience with so many great teachers. Did I have some teachers who were not quite up to the same level as the other teachers? Sure. But I really think there are so few truly bad teachers out there. Um, and most of the teachers that I had ranged from really good to great. Yeah. So when you went to college, did you study liberal arts? Were you planning to, or did you focus on a specific area? What, where did you go when you uh, left high school and left home? Well, I, so I grew up, I was a hippie kid. I never had gone to church and I did not have any money. And so I applied to random schools, not knowing anything about the process. My parents hadn't gone to college, so they didn't really have any guidance for me. And I applied to a small liberal arts school in Santa Barbara called Westmont College. Um, <laughs> okay. And it's very conservative. And um, I didn't know what the New Testament was. I didn't know what the Old Testament was. We had uh, chapel hours. Yeah, we had required uh, religion classes. And I would say it was a great, great experience for me. And so when kids are really stressing out their senior year about the perfect college with them, like it's college, you're going to be living with all young people. It's going to be really great no matter where you go, because it was complete culture shock for me to get there. Um, but it really, you know, helped me to just see things from a different point of view. And then after I graduated from uh, from Westmont College, I went to UC Berkeley, which is incredibly left and radical. And, you know, I got a lot out of that, too. So I just really think higher learning can be awesome wherever you go. Um, I really just had to follow where the financial aid went, and that was where it went for me. And I had great experience in, in, both, in both places. So what did you study at both of those? Um, in 
undergrad, I studied English. I just, I, it was actually a funny story. They sent me a letter saying, you can't register until you declare a major and registration is at 5 p.m. tomorrow. And I was like, oh, what, what do I want to study? Because I really liked everything and I was not prepared to determine what was going to be my course. And so I and thought, we well, at 18, we don't know. I know. It was really hard to, to say what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, I want to enjoy my classes and I want to, I want to like learning. So I really love to read and I really love to write. And so I became an English major and I did not declare a minor because I wanted to just take the classes that interested me. I took a lot of anthropology, a lot of art history. I went to Europe for a semester because I wanted my learning experience to be fun. So that was really my focus as an undergrad is, and I would come home on vacations and some of my friends would just complain about their classes and I would just be so excited about my classes and so excited about what I was learning. And they were like, I'm not having that experience at all. And I think part of that was an intentional decision on my part to choose stuff that was enjoyable. In grad school, I went to Berkeley's, uh, it was a master's degree in multicultural urban secondary education. So I knew that I wanted to work with, um, in, I, I wanted to work on equity issues. I wanted to work on racial justice issues. And so I, I chose Berkeley because it had that kind of a focus. Yeah. And that's a, I, I, I'm just thinking about the contrast of those kind of worldviews you experienced and that it's probably helpful in a lot of ways because you can kind of see the breadth of, of, of views of the world. I mean, I, when I think about Berkeley and I think, you know, like 1960s and protests and when I think of Westmont, I think of uh, nice, <laughs> nice Santa Barbara tennis courts or something. <laughs> so I'm sure nice you got Santa tennis courts. Yeah. I remember my, I had just gotten to Westmont and it was the second election of Bill Clinton. And I said, oh, I just got to vote for the first time. And some of the people at my table said, well, you voted for, I don't even remember who the Republican candidate was, but I said, no, I voted for Clinton. And they got up and left. They got up and walked away. So I really did see that there are some people, you know, who can be incredibly close-minded, but there were a lot of really wonderful, loving, very religious people at Westmont who really used their religion to um, just make the world a better place. And then I also went to Berkeley and I would say that at Berkeley, there are people who are equally close-minded and also people who are equally attempting to make the world a better place. So the ideology or the worldview was really just less important as the heart of the person who was doing the work. Sure. So after, did you jump straight into teaching? I did. I became a teacher. I was student teaching when I was 22 and I became a teacher teacher with my own classroom when I was 23. So I What were I, the first few years like? Well, the first few years were pretty tough. I was working at a school in San Francisco called John O'Connell High School. 90% of the students were Latinx and 10% were, you know, a mix of other demographics. And the students were pretty awesome. There were definitely some challenges, definitely some trauma. But I think that a school in a community of trauma often has so many factors that are really kind of above and beyond what you're dealing with in terms of your classroom teaching. I mean, there's a new curriculum you have to adopt. There's a, uh, a shooting on the corner. There's a, there's so many things that are just not even what you're trying to do here. And so trying to learn how to balance all of that as a new teacher can be really, really overwhelming. And I think we never really had classroom management issues. I'm very tall. I'm pretty assertive. I don't know if that was what it was, but I, I also think that I had really thoughtfully designed lessons. So the classroom management was never really the problem. The problem for me was um, trying to create a school with colleagues where I wanted to be and trying to find people in the building who I saw things similarly as. And that wasn't always happening. And that would be very discouraging. 
Okay, I was talking about challenges from the from the beginning, yes. and um, so some of the other challenges when I was first starting exactly how much to push kids. I think it it you don't want to just let kids be comfortable all the time, but if you push them too far, that's often where you end up getting you know behavior issues or um, where, where you really struggle. And so I, I do think that just experience, years of experience has helped me see how much to push, when to push, when to back off and let the kid just have a minute. Um, and being a mom, I think has also helped. Like I, I generally think that kids are doing the best they can. And the advice I always give new teachers over and over and over is give the kid an honorable way out, give the kid an honorable way out because often there's, they're, they're frustrated or they're stressed or they don't understand. And if you just say, you know, I, I think you're doing a really great job right now. And I want you to just take a minute right now and I'll come back in a minute. And then they, they, they do, and they, they, they will rejoin you. And if you show them that empathy, a lot of times you can then push a little bit harder. So learning that technique, learning when and how to push has really been the thing that I didn't know in the beginning that I've, I've learned as I've gotten more experienced. I guess what I'm hearing you saying is that, um, for a lot of teachers early in the profession that are struggling with classroom management, by focusing on that problem, they're maybe focusing on the wrong thing and that maybe it's the instruction that will help them fix the management problem kind of as a consequence of focusing on developing dynamic lessons. So I'd say that if a teacher is having classroom management trouble, I would recommend a few things. First is really look at your lessons, because a lot of times if there's a problem with the teaching, a problem with the class, it's a problem with the lesson design. And if you go back to the basic architecture, where was the lack of understanding? Where was the missing piece? Where did we fail to make a connection for students? And that just helps tremendously. Beyond that, though, I do think that creating a positive culture in the classroom is incredibly important. So we do classroom culture building activities all of the time. Each day, students greet their partner. They always have a partner and they switch partners every three weeks. They have a special handshake with their partner and they have a quick warm-up question with their partner. I mean, today was, you know, ice cream or cake. And um, so that way they have an ally, they have a friend in class. And like I said, every three weeks they will switch and that way they'll get to be partners with pretty much everybody in the class. And that really helps them get to know each other, get to like each other. Um, and I do try to cultivate relationships with the students on my own. I'll often do data chats with students who are struggling where I pull them up because I say I want to check their grades, but not just in my class, in their other classes as well, because I want them to know that I care about them as a whole person. And when they're up there to talk about their grades, I'll ask them, like, what's going on? Why are we having all these absences? And really just try to talk to them like people. And I think that if when I do those three things really consistently, it's really hard for class to go Badly. Of course, there's always going to be that, eh, eh, knock that off. Hey, you get your butt in the chair. You know, like those things are important. That's part of being a teacher. And you're never going to have like none of that. That's always going to be part of it. But it just becomes really minimal and you become more of a coach and a guide and facilitator of the learning. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I ask it because um, yeah, I recently sat on a panel where we were interviewing new teachers for our department. And the administrator that was on the panel with me was like, well, let's really focus on classroom management and make sure that they are, you know, really confident in that respect, because that's kind of the first step. And I was like, really, is that the first step? I mean, I don't, you know, uh, and I, I hear what you're saying. It's a lot of the human things. So treating them like humans first, you know, uh, having those icebreaker questions that are non-academic or having those conversations where you start by addressing the, you know, those kind of first order things of like, do I trust you? Um, am I interested in what you're doing? So I, that's what I hear you saying. And um, I think there needs to be an emphasis on that first, because I think a lot of new teachers want to come in and just let's let's 
get through all the content. Let's let's move quickly. Let's you know without getting to know their kids. Is that is that kind of what you experience as well? Yeah, I think even before classroom management, the basic question I'd ask in an interview was like. T- tell me about an example of you liking kids. Do you like kids? Because classroom management can be learned, but liking teenagers cannot be learned. Liking kids cannot be learned. If you don't already, it's going to be really hard to teach you how to like kids. And if you like kids, you're going to keep you know, retooling things and rethinking things and continuing to try to make connections. Um, so really, that's where I would go. I'm not sure how to frame that question in an interview. but Yeah, I mean, that would be a, a little strange. But I think but- I think Tell me about a positive experience you had with a teenager. Yeah, I think there's those are kinds of questions that aren't on those interview sheets uh, that we go through that maybe should be. You know? Or even just listening to the tone of how they talk about teenagers. But that's really going to be very telling because, um, you know, if we're using a lot of battle language, that's going to be a sign. And if we're right. using a lot of management word. I was I was having this discussion. So I'm in a I'm in a doctor of education program. We we're having this discussion about kind of the, you know, things that are that are connoted with the word management. Um, and from my point of view, and I know this is not necessarily universal, but managers, it's kind of like this, like top down, I'm putting a structure on you as opposed to kind of leading or guiding, you know? Facilitator, classroom facilitation, right. really. That's more right. the way I think we should think about it. But Absolutely. I would say so, also though that um, in terms of creating that positive classroom culture, a lot of the curriculum that I use helps foster that positive culture as well. For example, we'll have a unit on LGBTQ issues. We'll have a a unit on Black Lives Matter. We'll have a unit on, um, you know, segregation and schooling. And as we're going through these units, students have a lot of opinions and a lot of ideas. And they may not, you know, they they might disagree with what I actually agree with. But I think at the end of it, they do feel like, wow, she really does care about all the people. And that helps them really relate to me as a person. Like, I might not be in the LGBTQ community. And I might even have issues with this whole topic based on the way that I was raised. But I I know that she's doing it because she wants all the kids to be included in the classroom. And so all my students do, they um, they introduce themselves with their pronouns and they introduce their partner with their pronouns if their partner feels like sharing them when we start out. Um, so little things like that can really help give students the message that we care about everybody here. Absolutely. Well, um, so let's talk about your discipline a little bit. Um, so why don't you share what uh, the classes that you teach and um, if there's anything that makes teaching that subject uh, different than teaching? I mean, you only know your experience, but I'm just curious about the idiosyncrasies of what you teach. Well, I have taught all of the levels of high school English. So I've taught really remedial classes. I've taught AP language. I've taught AP literature. And I've taught all of the levels of English language development, which is working with students who speak a language other than English at home. Often those students are immigrants, but not necessarily, especially in California. A lot of those students were born here. They speak a language other than English at home. And they're in this no man's land of not being totally proficient in English, um, but not having a really strong foundation and another language to fall back on for translation. So I love teaching. I love teaching all of them, really. I mean, ELD, English language development, working with um, the students who are, there's so much growth there. There's so much Um, joy there. And when working with long-term English learners, a lot of those students are so discouraged. By the time they get to me in high school, they have to be an LTEL, a long-term English learner. By definition, you have to have been in this country for seven years or more. Seven years or more and not progressed and not graduated into being a reclassified student. So they're often presenting as incredibly apathetic, sometimes even angry. But really, once you get through it and you say, hey, I believe in you, you can do this. You didn't fail. The system failed you. And I'm going to help you move along. Um, That can be so rewarding. I like English just because of the freedom. English is the subject where 
we, we don't really have content the way other subjects have content. Our content is skills. So we can do those skills with anything. You can do them with articles you got online last night. You can do them with, um, with novels if that's what you want to do. But there's the freedom of an English class that's really well designed is just beautiful. And I love teaching AP because those are the students who love reading and they're here because they want to read the 50 million books that we're going to read that year. And they're excited about it and they come to class and they're all raising their hands and they're, um, you know, they're just jumping out of their seats. So I'd say that, that I just love my job and actually I like a variety. I hate having five sections of the same thing. A lot of teachers prefer that. And I understand because it's less prep work. You only have to prep for one class and then teach five times. I would go crazy. So I love having three different things that I teach in a day because it keeps the day going so fast, but it is more prep work. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of controversies in like how we teach reading and writing and if there's a right way to do it, are you kind of a more prescriptive person? You want to teach them the rules and then have them learn based on those rules or get them into the writing and then learn the rules after as you teach them? Is there a particular stance or perspective you have on that? I definitely teach her the more immersive approach. So if we had to wait until we had all of the rules to write, we would never write anything. So at the beginning of the year, I'm thinking more about form, about the whole structure of an essay, what's going to go in the different parts of the essay. Um, and then they're writing. And I'm not really correcting sentence level errors or anything like that. Um, after that, the ne- maybe the next third of the year, we're going to talk about you know use of evidence or use of details or development. And that's just a little bit more zoomed in. And then now, as we're getting to this part of the year, we're starting to look at sentence level work. But we're doing it all within the context of thoughtful writing assignments that hopefully make them think. Because we can't sacrifice critical thinking while we're waiting for them to get the conventions down. They're going to be critically thinking all along. Um, and then and then all along, we're going to be folding in lessons that help support them. Absolutely. Um, so it sounds like you had kind of a good first couple years, um, but I'm sure that there were some challenges like every young teacher has. Um, and what do you wish, I guess, if you could go back and talk to that young second or third year teacher um, as the veteran you are now, um, what what do you wish you could say to that young teacher to either guide, guide you on a track that uh, got you to where you are now, or maybe helped you see something you couldn't see until later on in your career? Well, I do work with student teachers and I do have one right now. And I did just tell him to take the day off today. And so my first thing that I would say. So relax is the, is the advice. So my first (laughs) advice for, um, for new teachers is to plan a day off Every month or so, they give you those sick days. Don't sit on them. You need mental health days, especially when you're a new teacher. Um, oh, am I am I echoing? Uh, not on my end. Okay, good. Um, so I would definitely say yes. Take some days. Just go for a run. Have brunch with a friend. And I think that's actually a really responsible move. Just very self-preserving. I would also say you do not ever need to finish something you start if you start something that doesn't end up working out. I remember (laughs) I had this one group of students and they were English learners. And I had heard all of these people talking about how you should read Shakespeare with English learners and not in translation. Read the, you know, read the real Shakespeare. And and so I get the books and I go and we start and we're reading like the first page. (laughs) And I went over to my computer and I pretended like I had an email. I said, oh, 
we're double booked on these these books, you know. Another class actually signed up for them at the same time. So we're gonna walk right back to the library and turn them back in. And we had literally just picked them up. And they're like, What? We just got them. We we, we should get these books. <laughs> There's no should way. Be thinking, child. <laughs> so, of course I didn't tell them this book's too hard for you, but I did just abandon ship and I did something else that was gonna actually have some learning happen. So as soon as you realize that you're doing something that was either ill designed or just like too hard for kids. And I, you know, and I like to really push kids. So I'm not saying that lightly, but it's okay to just stop and you don't have to finish that book. I don't, I remember, I remember reading this book early on in my career. I don't know the name of the teacher. He's from LA Unified. And the book was, he, he performs like rocks Shakespeare musicals in his class for like, and it's like fourth and fifth graders. And they like, you know, read it with fluency and then sing parts of it. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I need to do this. And I was teaching eighth grade at the point and I was like, yeah, we can, we can do this. We can do this. And, you know, I had a bunch of, yeah, ELD kids and, you know, kids with, that are not reading at grade level. And, and I was afraid to let it go because it was something I was like, if he could do it, I could do it. Right. But I, you can't replicate someone else. You, you know, so one of my favorite books is by this guy named Parker Palmer. And it talks about uh, kind of the virtues of a teacher. And uh, one is being authentic to yourself, you know, not to be some other teacher. You can't replicate your favorite teacher. You just have to allow yourself to come out. And when you're authentic to yourself, people will listen. Um, but I think there's a temptation to read those amazing teacher stories and and hear, oh, yeah, I want to do that too. But I think that you're really onto something is the, the comparisons to other teachers. You don't know what goes on in their classroom. You don't know the hard moments they're having or the struggles that they're having. My student teacher the other day, I asked him how the class that he'd taught went. And he had he was doing a lesson I had done earlier in the day. And he said, oh, it was the, the Kmart version of yours. And I said, okay, that's your problem right there. <laughs> you're never going to recreate it. You need to make it your own. And so I think stop trying to say the words that I said and stop trying to do the things that I do because you're you. And so you have to do it a little bit more you. And then you'll start to feel more successful. Sure, sure. Um, so as you have moved into your career in teaching, we all kind of go through these uh, transition points um, where we either kind of hit a hit a maturity in our profession where we're starting to think differently or uh, kind of get in that groove. But I, I'm just curious, as you kind of moved into your career more deeper, deep, not more deeper, this is, you're an English teacher, um, as you've moved further along in your career, um, how has your mindset about the classroom changed? Um, are there certain things that you can think about that maybe you believed were true at the beginning of your career that you now know are not true and um, have changed since? I think when I first started teaching, I felt like my class was sacrosanct. You couldn't take any of my class minutes. I felt angry that every a piece of paper that had to go out had to go out to the students in English class. Um, if students
just that I felt like my class was the most important thing. It was my time was sacrosanct, and I was really a little bit angry whenever anything interrupted that. If I had to administer a test in English class, that made me mad. If I um, if a student needed to go to the wellness center during my class, that made me mad. If uh, I had to, if a student was going on a field trip, that would make me mad. Yeah. And um, when you see those ball passes come in, and you're like you know, he's almost done with his test and you're going to take him away from me. Do you knock on my door. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think now more about the whole child than I used to for sure. Like if a kid needs to go to the wellness center and there's a therapist who can talk to them and that has to happen during English, so be it. And these field trips are wonderful experiences for our students. And yeah, it's a little more work for us to have to catch them up when they get back. But I hope my own kids get to go on lots and lots of field trips. And I want to make sure that every student knows that I support their going on field trips all the time. So I think just more thinking um, outside of myself and more about the student's experience in school. And also, I'd say thinking systems, not just thinking like I can only be as good of a teacher as I can be by myself. But if I'm collaborating with other people and creating a team, who's doing something together, we can make such a larger impact. So yeah, I've really just kind of gotten bigger in terms of zooming out and trying to work with others, think bigger. Well, um, so kind of related to this, um, have you noticed, and I, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a non-touchy way to ask this question, but I'm just going to ask it because I think it's important. Have you noticed changes in the people entering the profession, you know, newer teachers? Um, do, are they coming in with maybe those different mindsets than you came in with? Are you noticing patterns in new teachers? So are you teachers? asking about millennials? <laughs> yeah, I'm asking about millennials. Are you noticing? Tell us what's wrong with millennials. There's nothing the wrong teachers. with millennials. I think millennials are really wonderful. And I think that millennials have a bad rap. And I'll tell you a few reasons why. I think that I think they're better than I was in the beginning. And I think I was pretty good when I started. So I feel like they're really. So they work hard. They that's, work hard. That's, that's, that's we can okay, dispel. They're well trained. And I, I, I think that they have a certain attitude that often gets misconstrued a little bit where like, you know, when I started out, it was you're going to work until five and then you're going to take this giant stack of papers home with you on the weekends and you're going to work all weekend. And I have not experienced, well, I think I've, I've heard more millennials say, no, that is not a tenable way for this to work. And that's a good thing. We should embrace that. All of us teachers who've been doing it this like very martyr-like way for a long time, we should learn a thing or two from millennials because I do think there's a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, I think that, I, I think that they're so much more aware of issues of, you know, human rights and justice and things like that than a lot of teachers were when I first started out. And I'd say it's just in general, there's more awareness of those things. So more equity minded, more equity minded. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think that they're great. And, and I think that this, any, any kind of attitude where we're like, they're not great is a problem because we have a teacher shortage and we need to be right. thinking about how we can celebrate all the wonderful things about them and then help, help them in the areas where they're struggling. But I have been really impressed by the millennials that I've worked with. And that's not to get meta, but that's why we're doing this podcast ultimately is, you know, is, um, you know, sometimes a teacher could get into a bad school or a bad district or not, a, not that it's universally bad, but that there's not an environment that where one can grow in a way that's healthy. And you might be shoved, in, shoved into a classroom that's like beyond your abilities as an early teacher. If, if a teacher is new and they are not enjoying themselves, if they feel like they need to get out of the profession, I would say don't get out of the profession. Try a new setting. So, 
you know, maybe it's moving to a different school in your district. Maybe it's moving levels from middle school to high school or high school to middle school. Just try a change because teaching, it's like saying you don't like reading, right? You don't like reading what? There's so many things to read. So there's no, I don't like reading. There's just, you just haven't found the thing you like to read yet. And I would say the same is true about teaching. It's such a wonderful job. And we just need to encourage people to not feel like they're giving up by moving from this school and going somewhere else. Cause I think often if they don't do that, they end up leaving the profession altogether, which is not what we need. Yeah. And I, you know, I started my career teaching in high school and then, uh, and then found myself in a middle school in a sixth grade classroom. Um, and had that moment where I'm like, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. This is, this is insane. These 11 year old boys, I just can't, I just can't do it. Um, but I had a a really wonderful administrator say, well, it's probably just not a good fit for you. You should either go teach at high school or maybe teach teach a little bit older. I mean, just do what's do what feels right to you. But don't, you know, it's nothing to do with you necessarily in the in a way that you're like failing. So I think that's another thing is is people feel like if they're not successful in the first couple of attempts, that means they're not it's not right for them because there's this whole kind of like you got to do what's authentic to you, which I was talking about earlier, which is true. But the downside, the dark side of that is that if it feels bad at first, then you might misunderstand that the authenticity question, you might think it's wrong, but it might just be like you're saying the wrong context. Absolutely. Yeah. So I thought. Um, last question. Wait, I had a thought about what you're just saying. Oh, okay. Was, go ahead. Yeah. And I was listening and then I had it and then I kept listening and I forgot. Talking about. Oh, yeah. I do think that uh, often we set up new teachers to fail. And we do that because all of the more experienced teachers are going to nab all of the classes that everybody wants to teach, right? And we end up giving new teachers this really terrible teaching assignment with all of these preps and all of these classes that are harder to teach when really we should be using our more experienced teachers for those classes. Similarly, a lot of new teachers have to you know, change rooms. And so they're walking around, they have three different classrooms, they have three different preps, and then we wonder why they're struggling. And I think that we need to be doing a lot better job of how, what's the easiest schedule we can give these people. And that means that those of us who've been around the block a time or two, we need to take that harder schedule until they are have become a little bit more seasoned and feel ready to take on some of those classes. And I think, I just, I really think we're doing that part all wrong. Yeah. So I, yeah, I agree. I think the veteran teachers kind of have to be the leaders in those situations and, and lead by, you know, taking on the hard and the difficult things. I mean, I, I, I say, I think it's a little bit of like this idea that as you're a veteran teacher, you get like the spoils of your tenure, you know, you get the spoils of how long you've been there. And so you should, you know, it's like a, the, what's that thing called? A, um, um, uh, diminishing returns. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Diminishing returns are like slouching to tenure or there's some yeah. book called slouching towards tenure that I read. Um, but it's the idea that just like, as you get older, it should get easier, but no, I mean, you're, you have this wealth of experience, you know, we should be putting that to use. I mean, I guess I feel like if it's getting, it, sh it should get a little bit easier. I would say that third year, that's what I also tell new teachers, third year, it gets a lot easier, right? And then gradually after that, it's just going to get a little bit easier. But I would say that it should never get easy. If it's getting easy, I think you're getting complacent. And so, you know, we should be reinventing our curriculum. We should be trying lessons that flop. If you don't have any failed lessons, you're probably not trying enough new things. That's what I say. I think we need a lot more innovation and innovation often means failure. And that's hard. Um, so I, I would I would question any teacher who feels like it's easy at this point. 
Yeah. I think that will be the quote that I, or quote, I need to use the right word, quotation. Uh, that'll be the quotation that I pull out that if you're not, if you're not having a flop or two, you're not really trying enough new things. Cause I think, I think we get used to, <laughs> we, we, we get used to, and we feel comfortable once we get a lesson down and then we just, you know, keep it in our drawer and want to pull it out in the next year at the same time with a totally different group of kids. It might not work with, but it worked for me. So I'm going to keep doing it. Um, but I think that that failure fear is is a big one. All right. Last question I have for you. Um, so when I when I went uh, when I was a new teacher and went through an induction program, um, I had to do kind of these data collecting assignments um, that was really more about reporting information than really kind of guiding me as a new teacher. Um, and I when I finished the induction program, it was a little bit like, well, I did, I'm, I'm pretty good at making a PowerPoint presentation, but I don't know, I don't know what I really gathered. And so I, I guess my question for you is if you um, got to design kind of, you know, a year long induction course for teachers, uh, what, where would you spend your time and where would you focus? Where, where do you see the, the opportunities at, to get those young teachers as they're entering the profession and, and kind of guide them? Well, I, I've thought a lot about this because I have student teachers. And so I have one right now. I had one last year um, and I had them both for the full year. And it was really interesting for me to see what their their programs were like. I would say that, first of all, student teachers should be paid. I do not. Be, I feel like this is wrong that we do not pay them. And I think that it also creates really interesting problems in terms of who we bring into the workforce. We bring in people who have the means to not have an income for a year. So there is a, there are whole demographics of people that we do not bring into the profession because they can't afford to do that. So right away, I think we need to be paying our student teachers. Second, I would say that I would do more heavy coursework in the fall and have the student teachers do more of an observational role. I know they're, they're doing more observation, but I, I feel like in the spring, they end up having to do their ed TPA. They have to do... Uh, they have to do five hours a day in the classroom. They also have all of their coursework and it just is, it's untenable and we need more teachers. We need good teachers and we're making this task so hard in ways that I think are not necessary. So I would really do a more academic semester, probably the summer and then also in the fall and then in the spring, have it really be practicum based and very little coursework, if any at all, because I think that spring should really be, they should be my shadow. They should be with me all day. They should be seeing what it's like to be to be staying here from you know seven in the morning to four in the afternoon and not having to be doing this half-heartedly. I mean, my student teacher has been wonderful, but doing this with half of their brain because they've got to race out of here to get to a class to do a paper that they feel is actually really re irrelevant to the work that we're doing in our classroom. Yeah. So. Well, I, I want to finish with this question uh, since you're an English teacher. What what are what what's your favorite book to teach? And I'll cut my out your favorite. long pause as you think about it, because I know that, that that's a tough question. Which is it your is. which is your favorite child? You know, my favorite book to teach. That is really hard and mean of you. I know. I'm going to have to go with A Raisin in the Sun, the play by Lorraine Hansberry. Hmm. I think plays are really wonderful. Uh, you can bring them into the classroom and I have costumes in my, my room and the students dress up in the costumes each day and we read them out. That can be really helpful for struggling readers as they see it dramatized. Lorraine Hansberry's play is just the best play. It's so good. It has you know, internalized racism and it has sexism and it has redlining and it is, 
it, and it's happy. It actually has a happy ending. It's the only book that we really teach in English class that has a somewhat happy ending. Um, so I, yeah, I really love that. A Raisin in the Sun. Yeah, I know it was a mean question, but yeah. you know, I, we all love our lists and our favorites and our things. Yeah. I'm, I I have not I have not read that play so it's on my list now. You should, yeah, it's really good. You act it out with kids. Are you a history teacher? I'm a history teacher, yeah. You could do you could do it with redlining Perfect. and segregation, nineteen fifty four, and all the segregation that's happening in the schools and all that. It's just it could easily be done in history. That's awesome. Well, thank you for spending time with me. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I am so excited to bring these to you. And stay tuned for our next episode, which will drop in just a few short weeks. I will close this episode with this quotation about teaching from Parker Palmer. If we want to grow as teachers, we must do something alien to academic culture. We must talk to each other about our inner lives. Risky stuff in a profession that fears the personal and seeks safety in the technical, the distant, and the abstract. Until next time.